Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University and internal medicine clinical pharmacist at Iowa Methodist Medical Center. Welcome to our pod. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about uh, something that is a a bit of a niche, but certainly something that I get questions about several times a year, and that's uh, patients who have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So for whatever reason, uh, the exocrine, exocrine functions of the pancreas don't work anymore. And just in the last couple of weeks, the American Gastroenterological Association came up with, I think, to my knowledge, the very first set of guidelines for this problem. And I, because I've never certainly read any guidelines before. And there's always been a lot of questions about, you know, when do you suspect it? How do you dose it? Um, as any pharmacist will tell you, pancreatic enzymes, there's about 15 different formulations. Uh, insurances usually don't cover it. Um, and if they don't, uh, the patient will probably not be able to afford it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there, there are actually some pretty uh, significant questions associated with this. And again, it, it isn't probably the most common disease state that the, the primary care practitioner or pharmacist is going to run into, but it is something that I, like I said, I see at least several times a year and get ad ask questions several times a year about it. So um, I see these patients mostly with chronic pancreatitis. So this is someone who's had pancreatitis over and over and over again to the point where they basically destroyed most of their pancreas and they essentially can't produce exocrine enzymes at that point. Uh, As you might imagine, most of those patients have diabetes at that point because they've also knocked out all their beta cells. Uh, That's where I see these patients most commonly, but certainly that's not the only reason why patients develop uh, exocrine insufficiency. Uh, uh, You know, the other, of course, the big one that I don't see a ton of, but but my pediatric colleagues do, of course, is cystic fibrosis. Uh, But some of the other things include uh, pancreatic malignancy, where they say that that, uh, the use of pancreatic enzymes in patients with, with pancreatic cancer is actually way underused and we should use it a lot more. And even in patients with bariatric surgery will sometimes develop exocrine dysfunction uh, depending on the surgical anatomy and, and kind of what happens. So it just kind of depends on, on a lot of that stuff. And unfortunately, a lot of these patients have overlapping issues that can kind of get confused with, with exocrine insufficiency, such as celiac disease. So it's an interesting disease state. Um, and uh, again, not, not the most common thing, but something that I think I think everybody runs into at least a couple of times a year. These guidelines uh, were pretty much your standard guidelines. They were approved by the AGA. Uh, they did do the the uh, standard formatting and reviews. So they did uh, uh, literature evaluation and stuff like that. They did not do their own systematic reviews, which is what uh, the AGA and actually a lot of other medical organizations are doing nowadays for their official guidelines. Is they'll they'll pull you know randomized control trials and do their own systematic reviews or meta-analyses to come, to come up with their evidence. Unfortunately, in this field, there just aren't very many good randomized controlled trials. So they note that in, in, the, in their methods that, that because of that, they just basically took a look at best practice information and uh, came up with, with uh, best practice advice statements. And so they looked at the literature, did their best to come up with, with a uh, um, uh, consensus of what the guidelines were. They did still you know, give evidence you know, based on the strength of the guidelines, based on the strength of the evidence, but uh, they did not do what, again, I think an increasing number of, of, of groups are doing, which is basically doing their own kind of mini meta-analysis on their recommendations to help guide, guide what they're saying. So, so they talk about the fact that this occurs in about one half of patients with chronic pancreatitis. And that, that's about what I think I've seen, uh, again, very common in cystic fibrosis, some other diseases as well. 
Chronic alcohol use then, of course, is, is one of the most common risk factors for developing exocrine dysfunction because that's the most common cause of, of pancreatitis. But uh, they note that, again, other things such as, as pancreatic dust cal duct calcifications, diabetes, uh, pancreatic malignancy, you know, and again, cystic fibrosis all are, can lead to exocrine insufficiency. Um, but, but the most common cause people are going to run into is, is, is chronic pancreatitis. They note that uh, the more episodes of chronic pancreatitis, the higher the risk of exocrine uh, insufficiency. And they, and, they, and they note that after several bouts of, of, of acute pancreatitis, the risk is, is approximately 80 plus percent. So, and, and again, that's, that's typically what I, I see. It usually occurs five to 10 years after uh, the first incidence of pancreatitis. Um, and in cystic fibrosis, it occurs much quicker. Smoking uh, seems to uh, accelerate the risk of exocrine dysfunction, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. And so, of course, quitting smoking, you know, for is good for this and 9,000 other things that we talk about. Um, and it, even though it's kind of beyond the scope of this pod, they note that, that again, CF uh, patients will have actual exocrine insufficiency at birth. But again, we're going to focus, and, and these guidelines, I think, are much more focused on adults than children with cystic fibrosis. Symptoms of exocrine dysfunction, um, unfortunately, aren't the most pleasant to talk about. So I hope you're not eating when you hear this pod, but uh, they unfortunately have to do with stool. And so, you know, uh, they talk about, you know, bloating, gas, uh, a steatorrhea, which is super fatty stools. And that means that they're, that they float in the bowl and that they don't smell very good and stuff like that. Yeah. Sorry. But that's just kind of how, uh, <laughs> what the symptoms of, 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 uh, pancreatic insufficiency are, uh, they, in their gut, in the symptoms, they list flatulency. Didn't know that was a word, but apparently flatulency is a word. So, and we all know what that means. So I won't, I won't uh, belabor that. Uh, I think that's, you know, that is distressing for patients and it can lead to abdominal pain. So, I mean, the bloating and abdominal pain that, that occurs with chronic pancreatitis, at least part of it is associated with some of these symptoms, but I think a little more seriously, um, the other problem you run into is malabsorption. Uh, again, if you're not secreting exocrine enzymes, you're not absorbing, uh, uh, especially uh, fat soluble vitamins. So, Many of these patients are deficient in A, D, E, and K, um, also uh, essential fatty acids, and even some studies suggesting that vitamin B12 deficiency is a little more common. So of course, because of that, you get all the issues associated with chronic enzyme or chronic vitamin uh, deficiency. So, you know, patients with vitamin A and E uh, deficiencies can develop, you know, visual problems, uh, skin issues with vitamin A, you know, neurologic things with B12, coagulopathy with BE. Again, I'm not going to kind of belabor that, but just the bottom line is that is that uh, uh, certainly something that is very serious. So, so exocrine uh, dysfunction is, is is uh, particularly vitamin malabsorption risk of osteoporosis, as you might ex expect in these patients is, is quite high. Um, not only because of, of exocrine dysfunction, but again, many of these patients have chronic pancreatitis probably aren't eating them a right amount of calcium and vitamin D. So that's, that's another issue as well. So, you know, yes, there, there are certainly GI issues associated with it. And I certainly don't mean to downplay those. Uh, but, but uh, the other, uh, at least as important, if not more important issue is, is the chronic uh, vitamin mal uh, malabsorption and deficiency. How do we diagnose exocrine dysfunction? Well, uh, in the old days, we used to do a fecal fat count. And so you do that by literally collecting 24 hours of stool and then measuring the fat in the stool. And I'm sure that was fun for everybody involved from the patient who had to do it to the lab people who had to measure 
that, however they did that, um, that is no longer recommended. And in fact, uh, the, the guidelines uh, note specifically that the fecal elastase test is now the most appropriate initial test and should be in pro, uh, performed on patients who you suspect have endocrine dysfunction, exocrine dysfunction. So again, patients with chronic pancreatitis who complain of some of these GI issues, um, patients who might have, again, some vitamin malabsorption, if they have any of the disease states we've been talking about, it's very sensitive and very specific. So a fecal elastase level of less than hundred actually has a high prob uh, predictive uh, value of, of, of uh, diagnosing estrogen uh, dysfunction uh, levels between hundred and 200 or more indeterminate and above that uh, you probably don't have that. Uh, the good, uh, the reason this is now recommended is obviously it's a lot frankly, less messy than, than, uh, the fecal fat measurements, uh, and, and it's probably as, or more, um, uh, sensitive and specific, uh, it's relatively inexpensive. Most labs will do this test as well. And the best part is that it is still a sensitive and specific test, even if patients are on pancreatic enzymes, which the fecal fat uh, measurement was not. So, um, uh, the, for all those reasons, uh, uh, fecal elastase tests are, are the, are the initial test you would want to check in patients who you suspect of excrement dysfunction. And again, those numbers are simple enough that I don't think you need to be a GI physician to do that. Um, in fact, I would argue that, that, you know, given a simple treatment associated with this, you know, while many of these patients will be seen a, a gastroenterologist for other reasons, I don't think there's really any reason why a primary care provider can't do a lot of this. Um, because it's relatively easy to diagnose and there's only one treatment and you can make some adjustments as time goes on. So, and measuring vitamin levels are fairly easy stuff like that. So again, fecal elastase is, is the way to go uh, as far as diagnosis. Then the guidelines move into treatment and they note that that pancreatic enzyme replacement is the treatment of choice, as you might imagine. And again, if, if you just ignore it, not only do they uh, have continued GI symptoms, but um, uh, the, the malnutrition of, of uh, other patient has, including vitamin deficiencies. And they, you know, they note that, especially in patients with pancreatic cancer, that as we said before, that uh, exergen in, uh, uh, dysfunction is very common in these patients and that a pancreatic enzyme replacement is vastly underused in studies, in some cases, less than 20%. And so, and there are studies that suggest that in those patients, uh, giving them pancreatic enzymes actually does improve quality of life. Uh, it, it fixes nutritional deficiencies and it actually may even, and I did some, I did, I looked at this, the studies they noted on this and it's not, you know, these aren't randomized controlled trials, but retrospective studies suggest that it might even improve mortality um, in, in these patients and actually in, uh, extend life somewhat. Again, I think that's, that's a little, that, that might be a bit of a stretch, but at a minimum, I think you can say that it's going to improve uh, what life or quality of life they do have and uh, help uh, uh, with their uh, vitamin absorption and stuff like that. So as any pharmacist will tell you, uh, there's about 15 different uh, preparations of pancreatic enzymes. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but there's certainly uh, several of them out there. All of those uh, uh, preparations contain some sort of combination of lipase, amylase, and proteases, right? So the three big enzymes that, that, the, that the pancreas secretes to help you digest food, almost all of them are, are available as uh, enteric-coated capsules, usually with like micro beads in them. And the reason for that is that um, in the stomach, uh, all those enzymes will get destroyed uh, or denatured. And so uh, you need to have some sort of uh, uh, formulation 
fermentation that allows it to, 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 to buy it, to get through the, the gastric juices and in, into where the small intestine where it should be secreted. Um, the exception of that is biocase. Biocase comes as a non-enteric-coated tablet. It also comes, or at least it used to, to, to come commercially as a powder as well, uh, because it does not have an, an enteric coating into it. Uh, patients who are going to use biocase uh, have to have take an acid blocker with it, so either a proton pump inhibitor or H2 receptor antagonist, uh, and studies have shown that improves absorption as well as improving efficacy. Now, many of these patients are already on uh, H2 blockers or proton pump inhibitors for other reasons. Chronic pancreatitis patients are almost always on some sort of, of acid blocker, but if they aren't and you're going to use biocase, then then you need to you need to use uh, uh, some sort of anti-secretory agent. In my world, the big place where we use these is in uh, patients with chronic pancreatitis uh, who um, have um, uh, feeding tubes in. So if they have enteral uh, tubes in uh, and are getting fed that way, uh, unfortunately, as you might imagine, you can't just open up the the other uh, preparations and send them down the feeding tube. So you have to use that. You have to use the the non-enterocoated tablets. Also, as any hospital pharmacist will tell you, we also commonly use uh, uh, the biocase uh, to um, uh, dissolve uh, uh, blockages in enteral tubes, like blockages of dried food and stuff like that. It, it, it will help uh, break that up as well. So um, um, you have multiple uh, formulations on the market. And the, except with the exception of biocase, they all have some sort of proprietary um, uh, formulation that pr protects the uh, um, uh, capsules from getting uh, being denatured in the stomach and going through. The guidelines note that there is probably no difference between them as long as you use them in equal potent doses. Uh, there's never been one that's, that's been shown to be better than another. And they specifically say that there's generally no reason to switch from one to another based on response because, again, they all basically contain the same things. And all you should really have to do is adjust the dosages. And all of these uh, uh, preparations come in a wide variety of of dosing formulations, adjusting doses is usually relatively easy with even within one formulation. So for example, uh, pancreas, which is again, one of the most common enteric coated micro tablets that's used for, for uh, excrement in, uh, deficiency comes in six different dosage formulations. Um, and so you should be able to adjust doses relatively easy within, within the same preparation. And in fact, the only reason that it's usually patients are usually switched is because their insurance no longer covers it or it's unavailable for a long time. Pan pancreatic enzymes were not available or or, or only one or two different brands were available. So that's become less uh, of an issue now and more are, are of the uh, enzyme formulations are available. But again, that's that's the big thing. The other is the, all of these are unbelievably expensive. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. There are some over-the-counter preparations for enzyme replacement. And the, as you might imagine, the AGA guidelines uh, call them out and they say they should be used because like all dietary supplements, we have no idea what's actually them. And so they're utility and in, in, in safety is unknown. So the dosing of, of pancreatic enzymes is essentially based on uh, the lipase account. And the reason for that is that humans have other mechanisms for protein and carbohydrate digestion, but they don't have any other mechanisms for di digesting fat. So the focus on pancreatic enzyme replacement is on lipase. And that's why you dose drugs based on lipase. Uh, the primary goal is to basically improve symptoms. So they have less GI symptoms, less diarrhea, less diarrhea. Uh, uh, less abdominal pain and bloating um, and things along those lines, but also to in ensure that the patient is absorbing uh, particularly vitamins as well. And those are, those are kind of the goals of therapy when you're doing this. If you look at the package insert of any of these medications, 
medications that give you an idea of kind of starting dose. It is worth noting that the uh, uh, the pancreas makes about 900,000 units of lipase during an average meal. <laughs> That's right. I said 900,000 um, and about uh, 90,000 units. So about a 10th of that uh, is needed to be used to prevent scatteria and diarrhea. So um, it, it's worth noting that the doses we give of pancreatic enzymes don't even come close to that. I mean, they're high, but, but they're, it just, we're not going to, to equal exactly what the pancreas secretes uh, during a normal meal. And so because of that uh, complete elimination of symptoms, uh, GI symptoms is probably not a attainable goal. And again, they call that out in the guidelines that you should definitely have uh, improved uh, symptoms, but uh, it's, it's probably unrealistic to expect, you know, completely absent GI symptoms, even though, again, uh, most of these patients will at least have some residual pancreatic function. So uh, uh, you even though a lot of their pancreas has been knocked out by, again, cancer, chronic pancreatitis, something along those lines, uh, there should be at least a little bit of exocrine function left. And I think that's one of the reasons why they target uh, lower doses of, of uh, pancreatic enzymes, again, based on the lipase content. Um, and they say you should probably start at about 40,000 units, so about half of what uh, the, the pancreas would normally secrete to prevent steatorrhea for a standard size meal. And then for snacks, uh, you want to use about one half of that dose. And then basically from there, you adjust the dose up or down largely based on symptoms and largely based on meals. So if a patient were to have a, a very, very fatty meal or a large fatty meal, uh, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, that might be an example. Uh, you'd wanna use a higher dose, kind of almost like people, uh, diabetic patients who carb count and know how, much, how many carbs they're gonna eat. Uh, you can make some adjustments based on uh, the amount of fat the patient is as likely to eat. Um, and that can sometimes help. After that, um, doses should be titrated to basically uh, resolve or greatly improve GI symptoms, particularly steatorrhea. And, and so uh, while again, it's not really fun for, for patients to do, they should monitor their stools and, and make sure that, that their, their stools are, are, are not super floaty and super smelly. And as, as that goes down and as their gastrointestinal symptoms improve, that means that we're probably doing a good job and, um, of, of the right dose of what we're using here. The guidelines talk a bit about uh, doses for cystic fibrosis, which are a little bit less. And of course, they have to be dosed more by weight because we're dealing usually with kids. Um, but, but, uh, again, that that's kind of beyond the scope of this pod. Uh, the pancreatic enzymes are relatively well, uh, uh, tolerated. However, one of the big, uh, side effects and has been reported numerous times in the literature is clonic fibrosis. And so, you know, taking too much of, of, uh, pancreatic enzymes can actually cause, uh, uh sclerosing and, and fibrosis of, of the colon. There's also been reports of, of allergic reactions. All these agents are, are of porcine origin, and that might be another thing for religious or cultural reasons. Um, it may be difficult to, to, to help those patients if they, if they, for religious or cultural reasons, can't have uh, a porcine products. Um, and then some other really rare stuff. But I think, I think the, uh, the, the, the key piece there is, is to not overdose patients, because if, if you do overdose them, um, that you do run the risk of, of uh, a clonic fibrosis, which obviously can be pretty serious as well. So it really does require some, you know, it's not one of those set and forget things. It really does require you to, to, you know, have the patient monitor what's going on. If they start having, uh, you know, uh, constipation, something along those lines, you may 
may may have to back off on the dose instead of continually going up on the dose. They know that again, uh, prescription and pancreatic enzymes are really expensive. I did a little poking around on GoodRx and found that the average amount of of, uh, of a one month supply of any of these agents some is somewhere between two and three thousand dollars a month. So I mean, obviously beyond the reach of of almost all patients. And they know that uh, insurances often don't cover it or they uh, cover it only partially. And they call out and say that, you know, better insurance coverage is, is critically needed, especially for low-income patients. Well, you could say that about a lot of things, but I'm glad they at least call that out. Um, you know, it's worth, yeah, I, it, you know, like so many things, I, I think insurance companies feel like, well, if this isn't life-threatening, you know, and it's super expensive, we're just not, you know, we're, we, we can't afford to cover it. Um, and and it, it is like so many things in the world of GI, you know, it isn't like pancreatic enzymes themselves are expensive and we're getting them from pigs who I'm sure have plenty of panic pancreatic enzymes to spare. Um, but it's, it's uh, the delivery formulation. That's, that is why these companies can charge whatever they want, because there really is no generic to any of these medications, right? You know, because uh, it, it, it isn't the, the medication that's generic. It's actually the, the, the uh, formulation of the delivery system. And that is proprietary. And so because of that, you can't switch these, these medications back and forth. And so they can charge really kind of whatever they want to charge for it. There's something similar with, with uh, ulcerative colitis and the various mescelamine products that, again, it isn't the mescelamine that's, that's, that's the problem. It's the delivery system that allows the, the drug companies to charge whatever they want. And it's very similar here. Um, they also note that, that if once you start pancreatic enzymes, you need to screen these patients for uh, uh, vitamin deficiencies. And so this is going to be one of the, the cases where you are going to want to do kind of a full uh, uh, vitamin panel, including looking for vitamins. Uh, 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 levels of vitamins A, D, E, and K, because it goes those are fat soluble vitamins, as well as uh, vitamin B12 folate levels. And they even note that that it's probably a good idea to check uh, magnesium and iron studies as well. And there's even been some reports of zinc deficiency and and, and uh, um, uh, uh, problems associated with zinc deficiency in these patients. So I think that's a little more tricky, but I think certainly checking some of the common uh, vitamins, you know, again, ADEK and B12 certainly makes sense. And if the, uh, those levels are low, then you're going to have to supplement with, with, with extra uh, vitamins. Um, uh, in particular, they call out vitamin uh, D um, and note that, that these, that it's significantly lower in these patients. And they uh, uh, note some of the other issues associated with, with uh, uh, both D and K and noticing, noting that again, these patients are at high risk for osteoporosis anyway, and then uh, having low levels of that is going to increase that. It's kind of in my experience that that uh, these these patients are sometimes difficult to get vitamin D levels above thirty. And I've seen uh, and I got asked about this where you know you have to sometimes give these patients some pretty high doses of vitamin D to get those levels up. Um, you know I've seen as high as ten thousand units a day sometimes, which again is far beyond what we would give uh, normally patients who have vitamin D deficiency. So don't be surprised if you need to give higher than regular doses to try and, to try and get vitamin D levels in kind of the normal range. Um, uh, again, a, a 
specific ADEK supplement like is used sometimes in, in renal insufficiency wouldn't be a bad idea, I don't think, in these patients as well. And then more global assessment of, of, of uh, uh, malnutrition, including making sure that they're maintaining weight, uh, that their muscle function and muscle mass is sane, about the same, et cetera, et cetera. So it isn't just levels you want to look at, but also want to look at weight, body mass index, things along those lines. Quality of life measures, uh, the guy, uh, the AGA guidelines recommend should it, it should be done. Um, I don't think that is is probably done uh, commonly clinically just because it's just not something that, that, that kind of enters the brain, I think, of most providers. But I think having some sort of, of, of standardized measure, especially for GI symptoms, is, it, it probably makes sense. And just, to, you know, to try and have some sort of documentation in the chart about, okay, well, their score was this when we started pancreatic enzymes and the score has improved to this. Now they've been on it for six months or a year. That might even be a tool you can use to convince uh, insurance companies for, to continue coverage of these agents for the individual patient. They note that every one to two years, a DEXA scan should also be done again to, to uh, monitor for the development of osteoporosis. That I think gets a little tricky because again, if they do develop osteoporosis, uh, one wonders how well uh, oral bisphosphonates would work in these patients, right? I mean, you know, they're already, you know, barely absorbing anything anyway. And uh, you have a drug that's less than 1% absorbed. Um, and in patients who often have, you know, gastric, you know, ulcers and other issues associated with it. And to my knowledge, there are no studies looking specifically at oral bisphosphonates in patients who um, have excrement dysfunction. There may be some data in, in the cystic fibrosis literature, but not in the chronic pancreatitis literature. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, would you have to use intravenous um, uh, uh, bisphosphonates or, or some, or denosumab or something along those lines be kind of interesting. Um, uh, and, and so that's, that, that's kind of the, you know, the basic, you know, uh, treatment uh, tr uh, strategies and goals for treatment. And again, this is unfortunately not a set it and forget it sort of thing. You really do need to sit down and and uh, uh, start therapy and adjust therapy to help with symptoms and making sure their, their vitamin levels are normal. Now, the other big part with cystic fibrosis that has kind of uh, been controversial over the last 20 years is one of the big problems with chronic pancreatitis patients is, is chronic abdominal pain, which can be severe. And uh, it's due to, again, to inflammation of the pancreas. And uh, you know, if you work in, in, in with patients who have, you know, continuous bouts of pancreatitis, they kind of go into this, you know, they have, you know, chronic levels of pain in kind of the six to seven out of 10 range. And then, you know, for whatever reason, unfortunately, it's, you know, they might be, you know, going back to drinking alcohol or some other reason they have an acute flare that gets their pain up to nine or 10 and we're able to, you know, hospitalize them, you know, uh, and then maybe get their pain down back to the six or seven range. And then we send them home. Unfortunately, that means that a lot of these patients are on uh, chronic opioids. Uh, uh, and, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with using opioids in appropriate patients, but uh, because many of these patients do have substance abuse issues, I think there's some stigma uh, associated with, with, with sending these patients home on long-term opioids, even though it's been my experience that, that that's sometimes the only thing that really helps these patients is, is, is chronic opioids. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, Tylenol can certainly be used, but, but uh, and non-steroidals are often avoided in these patients, again, because of the GI effects. So the controversial part is then do, do pancreatic enzymes help with the pain associated with osteoporosis or chronic pancreatitis? And the, the data has kind of been back and forth. We're going to talk about that piece of, of pancreatic enzyme treatment right after this word from CD Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. 
Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about pharmacist by design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self. So we're back talking about the American Gastroenterological Association guidelines for exergent uh, dysfunction, again, usually due to, to either cystic fibrosis or chronic pancreatitis. We were talking about the use of pancreatic enzymes to treat pain in chronic pancreatitis. And uh, again, earlier studies suggested that there was an effect, but later ones did not. Uh, we now have uh, two meta-analyses that have kind of been tiebreakers, and both of them have come to the same conclusion that unfortunately, uh, uh, pancreatic enzyme uh, replacement does not seem to have a significant benefit in uh, uh, pain associated with chronic pancreatitis. However, those same studies do point out that, that the pain associated with chronic pancreatitis is often interlinked with some of the GI symptoms. So if you have, you know, bloating and abdominal distension, that can make the chronic pancreatitis pain worse. And so the AGA guidelines and, and, I, and my own kind of reading of the literature basically suggests that even though um, uh, pancreatic enzymes by themselves don't seem to improve the, the, the pain associated with just an inflamed pancreas, yeah, if they can help with some of the other GI symptoms, you still might get a little bit more relief on top of it. So while you probably don't want to use pancreatic enzymes solely for pain control and chronic pancreatitis, because the guidelines say that all patients with extra dysfunction should be on pancreatic enzyme replacement, they should all be on it anyway. So um, um, I have to admit over the years, I've started this kind of in desperation in patients. And, you know, they've been admitted multiple times with pain, with chronic pancreatitis. We've at least tried it. Um, I'm going to try after reading all this, I'm going to try and back away from doing that, though I am still going to recommend pancreatic enzymes in almost all of these patients, just because we know, especially the vitamin uh, deficiencies they have, again, assuming they can afford it. Is there anything else you can try? Well, a actual uh, rel relatively well done study done a few years ago, took a look at antioxidant supplementation um, and, and, and had a proprietary um, uh, a compound they used that contained various vitamins, um, uh, selenium, and some of them, you know, some of the more big, you know, antioxidants like methionine and and found in a, 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 rel, a relatively decent randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study uh, that, and most of the patients either had idiopathic uh, pancreatitis uh, or, or alcoholic pancreatitis. Uh, they found that number of, of, of non-painful days was significantly higher. Um, and in, in the treatment group compared to placebo, it was seven versus three days. And that 32% uh, of patients uh, um, in, in the antioxidant group uh, and uh, compared to 13% of patients placebo group did report significant pain improvement. So um, unfortunately, that means probably buying the specific antioxidant preparation, but I think it's reasonable to consider, you know, uh, 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 some sort of agent that has, you know, vitamin C, vitamin E, and methionine. And I think it's reasonable to try, you know, again, it's cheap. These patients are going to need vitamins anyway. So, you know, again, you might get, be getting, you know, double bang for your buck there, as well as, as improving their symptoms. So while pancreatic enzymes don't seem to be beneficial, I think antioxidants may have a role in the treatment of pain associated with chronic pancreatitis. So, so that's it for this uh, episode of uh, Game Changers. Um, uh, thanks for listening. We will see you next week, but until then, remember time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you then. Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at ceimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.